The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. is happening welcome to another episode of on the corner i am nick pollock and we're going to be beginning our mock draft in review episodes if you don't know this the pitch staff uh, did a 12 team mock draft uh, at the beginning of october it concluded around i'd say october 15th or so and across the next month or two i will be talking to everybody that participated in this draft it's all 12 teamer roto 23 rounds three outfielders two utilities Shohei otani as two separate players and today to kick it off is chad young chad thanks so much for being here thanks for having me i'm, I'm excited to be first yes i feel like it's like someone someone's got to go first someone's got to take that bullet and I'm here to do that. Well, it's not going to be old, the old guy. It's going to be Chad Young to do that. He's got to take the first step these days. Um, and if you want to follow along with Chad's team and the entire draft board, I posted in the description the link to the clicky draft board as well as the article um, that reviews everything as well as clicky draft can uh, disappear at times. So, uh, so definitely follow along. But what we're going to do is we're going to be going through the uh, the first 20, all 23 rounds. Uh, we're going to go through every single pick, and then we're going to have a quick moment in review at the end. But before we get to that, Chad, can you tell people everything about yourself, where they can find you and what you do? Yeah, sure. So um, you can find me on PitcherList. I've got some some articles up there. I've been, to be honest, I've been delinquent about writing recently. I've been more podcasting than writing. So you can also find me on the Keep or Cut podcast from the PitcherList Podcast Network. We actually just did our last episode uh, about this draft. So we're Pete Ball, my co-host and I, we, we cover keeper leagues. And so we use this draft to look at keeper values, guys whose pick in this draft was much better than their ADP last year. Uh, and so we had a really good episode. You can go check that out. Um, we're on the same feed that you find on the corner. And then you can find me on Twitter at Chad Young. Beautiful. Yeah, the Keeper Cup podcast. I mean, it's fantastic. Uh, and uh, yeah, you'll be listening to the Keeper Cut, I believe, every other week through the offseason, if that's correct. Every other Monday. Can't can't wait for that. And of course, every Monday through the uh, through the regular season as well. I believe I think that's what the schedule we're going to go with next year with you guys. Uh, but at the very least, you can yeah check it out on this main podcast feed. And of course, the individual Keeper Cut as well. 
But right, we're going to talk about your team now. You were drafting uh, from the ninth position. Uh, not quite sniping me. I was the seventh. Uh, and I, I do feel there were a couple of picks that I certainly groaned at uh, because I wanted them on my teams. But I, first of all, did you were you forced into the ninth spot or did you actively choose it? Um, so I was not forced into it because I think I was like the third or fourth person to actually go into Clicky Draft and sign up. So there were lots of spots open. But I don't know that I... I don't know if there was any rationale behind picking ninth. I just was like, I didn't, I knew I didn't want to pick at the very beginning. So that was basically what it came down to for me was like, what if I don't get one of those early picks? What if I don't get one of those spots where there's like five, six guys I really like, what, what am I going to do next? And so that was, that was how I ended up at ninth. Nice. Okay. So I, you said before you didn't want to go first. Why is that? Um, I never liked drafting first. It always seems to me that in, Every year that I can remember, there's been at least, I don't know, three to five guys at the top of the board who I'm like, any of these guys could be number one this year. Sure. Right. And, and, you know, a few years ago, like it seemed like it was going to be trout every year, but even that wasn't a guarantee. And so it always felt like being first and then being 24th is such a long wait when I could be fifth and still get a guy who might end up as the best player. And so I I like to be a little bit later. Typically, like as we get to, you know, February, March, and we start getting into the the heat of draft season, I'll have identified for myself, like, okay, these are the five, maybe six, whatever it is, guys who I think could theoretically be a number one pick. And then that'll be the pick I target, right? Okay, if there's six of those guys, I want to pick sixth. (laughs) I want to be the, I want to get the last of that first tier so that's where that's where I typically like to be. Um, like I said, for this draft, it's so early. I don't really have that list. I'm not, I'm not sure who those guys are yet. Right. I'm still sort of figuring things out. And this was more of a like, let's go with nine and see see what it's like picking from there. And here you are in the ninth spot. Uh, Vlad Jr., Acuna Jr., Tatis Jr. were the first three because, of course, we all like juniors. Uh, Cheesecake is the best here in Brooklyn. Uh, Trey Turner, Juan Soto, Bo Bichette, Jose Ramirez, and Shohei Otani all went ahead of you. And keep in mind, again, Shohei Otani, just the hitter, uh, not the pitcher assigned as well. So in the ninth spot, you went with Bryce Harper. Walk me through that pick. Yeah, so watching, you know, when I said I usually have like five, six guys, one of the guys I think is belongs in that early, early part of the first round is Jose Ramirez. And when he kept falling like I felt like he fell to you when you Mm. got him at seventh and so I had this moment of like maybe he's gonna make it all the way to ninth (laughs) and then he didn't and then I wasn't really considering Otani that early maybe I should have been uh but I was looking at basically expecting that one of Bryce Harper or Mookie Betts would fall to me and was going back and forth between those two and so when it came to my pick and they were both on the board I think what really stood out to me with Harper was like his last three full seasons. Let's ignore 2020 because it was whatever it was. He's had 34 home runs and 13 stolen bases, 35 home runs and 15 stolen bases and 35 home runs and 13 stolen bases. He's had 203, 212 and 185 runs plus RBIs. He's basically a guaranteed production across four categories his stolen bases, you know, he's not he's not Trey Turner, but if you're going to tell me that he's going to hit me 35 home runs and steal me 13 to 15 bases, and 
you know, this year he had a 300 plus average as well. So it just felt like he's been so consistent in four of the categories. He has the ability to put up a high average. And I felt like at that point in the draft, that consistency, like I want that floor. I want to avoid like all, like I could have taken bets. I could have taken trout. Those guys have the same ceiling as Harper does. Maybe you can even argue even higher, but he felt safer. Yeah, he's one of the safest bets you can have um, in the first round. And there's been a lot of arguments about Mike Trout versus Harper. Uh, obviously, Trout is this darling of a player, uh, but he's missed a lot of time. And Harper, the last four seasons, including 2020, hasn't really missed that chunk of time. Even 141 games this year was the low, really, relatively in the last four years, because uh, there was 58 last year in the 60-game season. Uh, and even in 141 games, still gave you those 35 home runs and 101 runs and 84 RBI and 13 stolen bases and a 309 average as if he didn't really miss that time. Actually, in a benefit, he's seeing the lower game amount because then you got, you know, another guy for 20 more games. So, yeah, Harper is an incredibly high floor. and It's kind of the guy that you want to get in the first round. We often talk you can't uh, win a draft, but you can lose one. And that's typically when we talk about the first 10 drafts or 10 rounds, but you can win a draft in the second half, I guess. Uh, but you can lose in the first and or the first 10 and Harper is not that. So, yeah, you'll be seeing a lot of Bryce Harper in the first round, I think, this year. It is very interesting to see Trout bets underneath him. But, I mean, that's really are you, how much are you valuing stolen bases with bets, I guess, uh, versus Harper's three category massive floor and then the helpful stolen bases. And, hey, maybe... You know, it's not going to be a 310 batting average. Uh, we don't expect a 360 Babbitt, but it's that simple. But, yeah. you know, 280 yeah. is still within the realm of possibility there. For sure. And I, I think, I mean, if I if I had it over again, I still probably take Harper. But again, Betts is really the one who I was wrestling with. Trout, I mean, I get what Trout's capable of. I think everybody knows what Trout is capable of calves especially a calf injury that's lingering like that like josh donaldson lost a ton of time for that right. and never really fully recovered and it, it's a much lesser talent but as a cleveland fan lonnie chisenhall was starting to break out and then had calf issues and basically had to retire over that right right and so i i'm a little bit like is it enough to make me think that trout doesn't belong in the first round or that like no no, he's he's probably going to be fine. This isn't like it's not like he's lost the year for sure. But that risk exists with him in a way that I don't think it does with Harper. And and before we move on to the second round, there's one question I wanted to ask beforehand that I completely forgot. Uh, what was your strategy going into this? Did you have a plan? Was it, you know what, I'm just going to figure it out on the fly of who I like, best player available? Or are you trying to test the waters of some theory that you have this early in the offseason? So I'm a I'm a best player available guy, um, and I think you know this about me, Nick. I'm I'm not a draft guy. I'm an auction guy. Oh yeah. So that's always my my big challenge in these drafts. Is it's like, you know, I'm looking at this draft, and we'll, we'll talk about it a little later with some of my other picks. But there were some guys who went that I was like, man, I valued that guy higher than where he went, but I couldn't take him because of someone else I was taking at that point, mm -hmm. uh, and. So that, that's always the big challenge for me. And so what I find myself doing when I'm in drafts is I'm a best player available guy. And then later in the draft, I start to adjust off of that based on need. And so that's another case where like, we're going to get, you know, much later on in this draft or on my 19th round pick, I made a pick for a guy who was not the top guy on my board, 
but fit a need at that time. Sure. Um, but this early on, first few rounds, I'm just taking the best guy I can get, and then I'll adjust. And if if the best guys I get like have no stolen bases, then maybe I punt stolen bases, or maybe I find them later if I can. Uh, if the best guys I can get are all power hitters, then I'm going to adjust later and get fewer power hitters. I mean, you certainly chose being the first guy best here because I have no idea. I, I have no criticisms to give. <laughs> I don't know when the best positions are yet. When, you know, I, I form this is partially for everybody listening. I'm sure it's helpful as we go through these uh, top, you know, 275 players through you know through these next 12 podcasts not to mention we're also going to do a 13th where we go over um the other 50 or so um that could have been drafted in this one and yeah i'll be reaching out to the entire staff that participated in this about who were the other guys you wanted who were thinking about for the next two rounds or so uh, but i the i don't know where the positional voids happen where the cliffs are and the part of this process is really for me to figure out as I, you know, as I go into 2022 and make my draft outline, uh, where are those positions that, that, you know, that we need to target? What is the optimal strategy to craft a team and, and really building from the bottom up? It's just something that we talked about a lot in First Pitch Arizona um, about, uh, you know, just that was the strategy that won NFBC this year is getting the focusing on the late rounds and then that will dictate the top rounds. So, all right, that's a lot of time for one round. Um, I promise we will go quicker through the first, you know, five or so. And then really the fun to me is really around 10 and then later. So Marcus Semi in the second round, big surprise, huge value guy for this year. Of course, I uh, had that amazing 2019 fell back a bit in 2020. Uh, the, the Jays got an incredible, uh, incredible season from Marcus Semi in here. And you believe it's going to stick Chad. I do. Um, and, and people who have, Listen to Keeper Cut. Know that Pete and I have been big fans of Simeon for a long time. We were talking about him a ton in the preseason that we felt like he was way undervalued over the last three years. So this includes his his bad 2020. Among players eligible at second base in this draft, he is first in home runs. So has more home runs over the last three years than Muncie, Betts, Brandon Lau. He is second in runs behind Betts. He's third in RBIs behind Muncie and of all people, Eduardo Escobar. Eduardo Escobar leads all second base eligible players in RBIs over the last three years. Who knew? Um, he's also 13th in stolen bases over that time, but half of the guys ahead of him, guys like VR, Dylan Moore, Colton Wong, Garrett Hampson, Birdie, Goodrum, are guys who went undrafted. So among guys who are going to be drafted in a league like this, you're talking about for, you know most power, second most runs, third most RBI, and top five to six in stolen bases among second basemen. And he's going to put up an average that won't kill you. He's not going to he's not going to win you batting average, but he's going to put up a solid average that you're going to be pretty happy with. And so to me, I think like he has he has proven himself to be the best second base eligible player over the last three years. So and yeah, I mean, one like Albies went before him. I would have taken Simeon before Albies if Albies were on the board there. I would right. have taken Simeon. What's really interesting about him and Albies is that they both are massive volume. That is 162 games in 2021 for Semien and in 2019. Albies has been up there as well in the same way. 159 games for Semien in 2018. Um, Yes, he missed like a week uh, into 2020. I actually do wonder if that was a COVID thing or not or or something. You never really know about missed games in 2020. I do need to look into that. But, I mean, Semien kind of had a loss 2020. I uh, came back, and I, the one stat that I'm, that's really important for me on Semyon 
is the pull rate that he had. Uh, career around 45%. Even in the breakout 2019, he has around 44 And then all of a sudden, this year is 51%. And what that tells me is that this is someone that was really trying to lean into a power surge. And yeah, we had an 18% home run fly ball rate, the career high. It was 15%, which was the previous career high in 2019. But pretty much, I mean, it was around 10% otherwise uh, throughout his career, say for one season in 2016. And having a pull rate like that generally then means that you're selling out for power, which some, you know, somewhere you take a dip. And you didn't really see that. I mean, the swing striker was an 8.7. That's an excellent mark. Uh, his O swing was only 26%. Still excellent. Yeah, it was a 20% carry rate, but hitters across the league had a higher strikeout rate. And 20% these days is great. We're happy with that. So th- these are all things that I think could theoretically stick in some way. Maybe not 18% home run fly ball rate, but pretty much around there, especially with this high pull rate. I I don't know, 45 home runs. I don't think you're saying that. But at the very least, a 30 home run performance from Semyon, assuming good health. He's going to be in this amazing lineup with the Jays again. Uh, I totally am on board with, uh, with Semyon being a very productive second baseman. And I mean, I'm not... Not saying I'm against this pick. I, 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 he'll be in my realm of okay as I assess second baseman. I'm actually looking at it now. My God, Albies and Semyon, and I mean I took Altuve in the fifth, but once again, second baseman is terrible. Yeah, and the gap does seem rather large with Semyon. Yeah, I think I mean the other the other second baseman who's going to throw people off in Yahoo this year is that Mookie Betts played enough second for the Dodgers this year that he will be second base eligible, mm. and so he's the other guy who, you know, when I say he's the first second baseman off the board. I would have taken Betts over Simeon. I, I, I'm not I'm not quite that high right. on Marcus Simeon, but sure. um, I I also I think the other thing that he brings to the table is the fact that he is still I believe should still be shortstop eligible, and so having both shortstop and second base that flexibility this early is really really useful because it means that in two three rounds or in my case in one round if if another middle infielder that I'm interested in falls to me I'm not immediately in a position where I'm struggling with that decision I mean just it's it's a different example but Pete Ball when you talk to him he took Bo Bichette in the first, and then he was just super excited about Corey Seager in the fifth. And so he took Corey Seager in the fifth. Now he's got two shortstops. Right. Had I been in a position where I took Simeon in the second and a great second baseman fell to me in the third, although like you said, there are not really other great second basemen, but had there been another great second baseman falling to me in the third, I wouldn't have had to hesitate. I could just take that and then be like, all right, fine. Simeon's my shortstop. Simeon, yes, 21 games uh, at shortstop uh, this season. Uh, so it's really, really nice to have that. I think that's a great point. And speaking of which, your third round pick is Xander Bogarts there showcasing that flexibility. Yeah. And when, when Bogarts, when I took Bogarts, I mean, I was looking at, boy, a bunch of guys. The top guys on my board at that point were Starling Marte, Jacob deGrom, Xander Bogarts, who I ended up taking, Matt Olson and Trevor Story. Um, I was watching as... Starling Marte was falling and I had a, I have a second round grade on Starling Marte. So I had him after Simeon on my board, but higher than a lot of the guys who went before him and Ben Pernick picked him right before me. I couldn't believe he fell that far and then to see him fall that far and then go. And so I sort of got thrown off a little bit. Cause I was like, 
penciling him into my sheet, ready to go right, with yep. Marte. <laughs> uh, and then going back and looking at it, it's like, I was also interested in story, but he was gone. And so I was sort of left yes. with. Yes, that was yeah, my pick, Chad. I know. The last two, it was like, I was literally like, oh, I'm going to get one of story, Marte, most likely. And then they both went in the seventh and eighth picks of that round. And so I was left with what was left. And I was looking at, like, I was looking at Jordan Alvarez. I was looking at Olsen. I was looking at Bogarts. And this was a pretty simple case where, for me, like I said, I take the best guy available. And he was the highest of those guys on my board. So I picked him. There you Um, go. And you look at what he's done over the last few years and consistently high average, which I don't always worry about um, just because average can be so volatile year to year. It's it's in some cases, it's my favorite category to punt because it's just like I feel like it's so hard to predict, but he's been really good there. And I feel pretty good that both Simeon and Harper are going to be solid there. It's all of a sudden I've got a base of like two solid guys and a very good average guy. And now maybe I can build around that a little bit. So when I talked before about him, best guy available, but then I start to pivot once I figure out how my team is shaping up. Mm-hmm. He just was a really, really good fit here. He's going to steal you a few bases. He'll get you plenty of runs and a decent number of RBIs. Mid-20s home runs out of a shortstop, especially if Simeon and Harper do what I'm expecting, is a, is a really nice base from those first three rounds. Uh, and he's he just seems very reliable. So I'm still in that part of the draft where like, I, I want to make sure I get decent floor because like I said, you can lose it in the first round. You can, you can lose it in the third too, right? I'm still at a point in that draft where I like, I don't want to pick a guy who I think is going to get me nothing. Sure. Uh, that, that's a really good point. Um, I, uh, so I reacted and got Trevor's story because I not really knowing how this was going to shape out again, we didn't have any reference point this year with this draft. I, uh, Often Justin Mason does the two early mocks um, and those didn't come to fruition this year. So we can't even cheat and uh, look at some other uh, drafts to get a sense of the ADP and who we should be looking at, especially for me, who does not really follow hitting ultra closely. I'm safe for, you know, when I'm making my tout picks and everything like that, when I need to, I say, okay, I need to make some changes. I, it can be very tough to figure out how, shortstop and all these positions going to shape out. So I said, you know what? In years past, I always go shortstop early because I don't want to think about this. And looking at the board now, um, Tatis, Turner, Bichette, Story, Bogarts, Lindor. And then it went Corey Seager, Tim Anderson, Wander Franco, Javier Baez, Carlos Correa, Alberto Mondesi, and Jorge Polanco, all in the seven round, first seven rounds. That's essentially every team save for uh, Van Burnett and Scott Chu already had shortstop taken care of. And we had some double ups there with Pete Balkan taking uh, Seager, Adam Howell taking Tatis Jr., Baez, and Mondesi. I imagine there was some second base eligibility in there. But uh, Tatis should get him outfield eligibility and he should get second base out of Baez. So that combination gives him, again, that flexibility in those early rounds just so valuable. Absolutely. Uh, But I guess what I'm getting at is it's a little deeper than usual. Um, Brandon Crawford in the 10th, Bobby Wood Jr. and Willie Adamas in the 12th, Danzy Swanson later on, uh, uh, Glaber Torres in the 11th. I think there are a couple others that just aren't really popping up. There's O'Neill Cruz, which is a really fun one, the 22nd round from Weber. Uh, so the necessity to get that shorts up in the third round is probably something I'm not going to be leaning on as much unless I wanted to go after, you know, stolen bases in that way. Um, and with Xander, that's not really the element that you get. He had five stolen bases this year, four in 2019, eight in 2018. If you get 10, you'll feel lucky about it. 
Um, but at the same time, as you mentioned, he is solid. You are going to feel good about that position. Um, oh, yeah, and it's Sebian, too. You also get short sub eligibility there, of course. Uh, so there's a lot of options, and it's something that I'm you know, starting to think about, saying, hey, if I'm when I'm drafting my teams here, the uh, I, I will feel likely better or more um, – There'll be more importance, I think, getting a second baseman, I think, in the first three rounds than a shortstop. And it's, it's definitely something for us to consider. Yeah, I think and this is uh, I'm looking at some data and I haven't quite finalized it yet. But as you know, I, I spent a lot of time on auto new. And so it's a different format, a little bit of a different structure. But I was looking at a bunch of different auto new leagues and pulling production by position for teams in those leagues. And across five different leagues I looked at, teams were getting more production out of their shortstop than any other position. Oh, wow. Now, it's a different format. It's a different structure. It's not a one-to-one for what we're doing in this draft, but I think that's a really good call, and that shortstop is shortstop's deep right now, and there's a ton of top-end talent in it, and you probably don't need to rush to get a shortstop. But, I mean, hey, Xander Bogarts, you're going to get – Everything you're going to I mean, the average is also a good point because Harper and Semyon, yes, they're solid, but they're not, you know, if you don't go after any uh, excellent average guy, then you're going to fall because they're not, you know, a lot of guys are getting a Trey Turner or you're on Sotos and you're, I I don't know, Mookie Betts and so on, Vlad Jr., that you're going to be behind unless you get some average guy because it's really hard to find average later on. And to find average that isn't empty uh, in Xander Bogarts is a good call. So we're going to go fourth, fifth round now to Xander's teammate, uh, Chris Sale. And you also have another, you have two starters here coming. So we'll start with Chris Sale, the fourth round. Why'd you go with Sale as opposed to someone like Alcantara, Ray, or Lynn? Yeah, this to me was um, a little bit of an upside play, which now I'm starting to shift into a part of the draft where it's like, I want to get, I want to get guys who I might be drafting late, right? Who I might feel like, oh yeah, this guy could have gone two rounds earlier. Sale, he pitched pretty well, not great, but pretty well when he came back. Uh, it was only nine starts, 42.2 regular season innings. The postseason has been a sort of a, a different story. Um, there's been a commentary about his velocity being down, which is pretty typical when a guy comes back. But it was at like 93.6, which is not actually far off from where he was two, three years ago and through most of his prime with the White Sox before he came to Boston. It's been higher the last year or so, but I'm not I'm not worried about that velocity, especially given he now has a full offseason to get himself right, to get everything back in shape, to build up his strength. And so I expect that coming back from from injury, what we just saw were his, you know, 42 innings of rust and that we're going to get a better version of him next year. And when I look at the other guys, the other, the other pitchers who went around here and the guys went after him, I think like I can make a case. I could have taken Alcantara over him, but like Robbie Ray's track record is a little hit or miss. I don't think Lynn is better than sale from a fantasy standpoint. And then the next couple guys who went, Aaron Nola and Carlos Rodon, have questions about them too, whether it's performance this year or injury risk, uh, especially with the way Rodon sort of struggled down the stretch. And so, I don't know. I, I'm, I usually wait on pitching longer than this. And this was a case where, again, Sale was sort of the, the best guy on my board, and so I took him. Um, but 
it it basically comes down to the fact that like sale to me was the last pitcher left who if you said to me right now i have a crystal ball and this guy is going to be the number one pitcher in fantasy next year that it's impossible that i'd be like yeah i could see that right if sale comes back to full strength he has a chance to be the best pitcher out there i can see that uh yeah with a the question of course is how much are we going to see of prime chris sale next year um, and about the velocity, uh, he teetered back and forth a bit. Um, there were certain starts he had 92 in change, and that's not what you want. But the other ones was 94 in change. And by the end, it was around 94. Um, keep in mind, 2019, I, I, I'm sure you remember this. We were freaking out because at the beginning of the season, the velocity was down, and we could physically see Chris Sale laboring with every pitch. It wasn't exerting as much you could see him throwing like 80 percent as opposed to 100 percent that we've seen in the past in 2018 that fastball velocity was more like 95 um, and that was more of 95 that sometimes would push it to 99 even um, and we didn't really see that side of Chris Sale at all this season so that's a big worry there uh, otherwise I mean slider is still an excellent pitch at a 65 percent strike rate which is what you want from it 34.5 percent CSW is pretty much in line with a lot of stuff in the past, maybe not as much of the swing and miss, but still a very effective pitch. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't as efficient as we've seen before. Um, it's plus percentage that is uh, it's the CSW plus outs that he earns with it plus foul balls. So anytime it's just a positive thing for him. Down five points, uh, which is actually kind of significant uh, for for Chris Sale. But the changeup was really the the major step back uh, O swing. We're talking a 10 point drop almost on O swing. I uh, did not get nearly the same out of it. It's just 13% swing strike. And remember with the change up, the average is around 16% of the league uh, at times 20% for Chris sale. And yeah, seeing 13% is a little worrisome. Just a 25% CSW despite 20, uh, 41 in 2018. And I'm not even mentioning 2019. That was a 41, but just cause I feel like that was hurt Chris sale. Anyone that experienced it remembers that. But I hope he can get back to that. Uh, it's obviously, as you say, he's shaking off rust, and that's a very, very good point of say, hey, he's just getting back to the motion. He has another offseason. He can really build up some more. Um, it's just a question of, is this it now? Is this who he is going to be, or does he have that twinkle still of 2017, 2018 still in him? Uh, I don't know. I likely won't be the one finding out <laughs> just because i mean that's just my strategy but i understand yeah top 15 pitcher chris sale still even last year 316 era 27 percent or sorry 29 percent k rate which is a six percent walk rate i think the 131 whip is not going to stick around so yeah even if he's exactly this he should still help out immensely uh for your fantasy teams yeah if, if he is what he looks like he is right now this won't be a great pick but it won't kill me yeah. If I'm right and he's shaking off rust and he gets back to being more like what he was, then I'm going to be thrilled with this pick. Yeah, Chris Sale can be that number one. And I will say, actually, I would have reversed your Chris Sale fourth round with your fifth round, personally. Uh, so then you took Julio Urias, who I have ranked higher than Sale. Uh, but it doesn't really matter in this. And uh, Urias coming off 185 innings shocked us all. Uh, what were your thoughts on Urias here? So this, is, this is another case of just pure best player on my board. And he was so far above my other choices at that point, because like I said, I, as I talking about sale, I usually like to wait on starting pitching. This is very early for me to have taken one, let alone two starters. Sure. But when I, like when I took sale, Urias was 
right there in the consideration set. And so when he was still there coming back, I was like, well, <laughs> I guess I'm getting him. <laughs> right, um, yeah. And so, you know, when I, when I look at, I mean, I talked about with sale, like there's reasons to take him above or below the sort of five guys. Cause there were, there were five pitchers who went between those two picks. It was like I said, Alcantara, Ray, Lynn, Nola, and Rodon. I take Urias over any of those guys. I think he is, I think I would have taken him before had no pitchers gone between sale and Arias. He still would have been my pick there. And so it was just one of those cases where like, I was like, I don't know why he's still on the board and I'm not waiting to find out. I'll just take him now. So, I mean, I would, I, I, I think everyone listening knows that I would take Alcantara over Arias, but sure. I, mean, I have Arias, I think at number 10, uh, which is, I think a bit higher than, than most. I also have Ray at nine, but that's a little bit closer to me um, than uh, than Alcantara definitively at eight for me. Um, this is the first seal of approval I'm going to give you. Um, because if you know that you can get Arias at the mid to late end of the fifth round, uh, I'm taking that every day. That's the 10th starter off of my board. Um, that is a wonderful floor where the Dodgers needed to lean on him this year more than we thought because he had... You had TB leaving. You had uh, Tony Gonsolin not being effective. David Price not being effective. Kershaw missing time. So they needed Arias for 185 innings. And they showed that, yeah, okay, yeah, he can take that workload. Now, there is some question about that. I'm curious where your thoughts are. Like, how much are we going to see of Arias next year? I think it probably has less to do with him and more to do with the, his teammates. Mm. Because I'm he seems to be healthy and good and ready to go. And I think if they have, if the Dodgers have six to seven solid, healthy starting pitchers, they're going to put innings limits on everybody because it's just what right. they do. Right. And he's going to have a tired shoulder in July for two weeks and miss a few starts. And like, that's right, just yeah, going to exactly. happen. Um, but if they're not healthy or if they don't have, a, you know, if, if Bauer is gone and they don't really replace him and Kershaw's on a little bit of a limit and all this stuff, then I think he's going to be out there every fifth day because they're going to need him. And yeah. I don't think, I don't think they are so cautious about pitcher innings that they'd be like, we're going to throw out some like guy who doesn't belong in the majors just to avoid throwing too many innings with, with our ace. Yeah. So I'm, I am, uh, I'm not that worried about it because I think I'll throw enough innings to be valuable. I also think in a head-to-head format like we were drafting for, I'm pretty sure he'll be pitching in the playoffs, in the fantasy playoffs. And so that gives me at least a little bit like, okay, if I lose him for a few weeks, if miss a few starts here and there, as long as I'm good enough to make the playoffs, he'll be there when I need him. Right. And they'll be using them to get him ready for their playoffs, right? He'll be pitching a pretty full load through most of September, Right. The last week or so, who knows? But through most of September, he'll be throwing a pretty full load in order to get himself, I guess, ready to be a follower and throw four innings in, in October. I guess that's <laughs> what they're planning for. Right. Um, yeah. With Arias, it's it's very interesting, his repertoire right now. He changed from a uh, curveball and slider approach and really turned that into one breaking ball in this curveball. They had a 22% called strike rate and a near 35% CSW on the year. Excellent offering. And his fastball was elevated a ton and 72% strike rate on it and was very effective for him. And the changeup, it, it, it's, it's fascinating to me. It has a very low CSW, 24%, but he was incredibly efficient at getting outs with it. 
Um, and a 42% O swing is a reason for that. So 194 batting average allowed on his changeup is excellent. And I've been kind of talking about, hey, it's been fastball curveball really succeeding while the changeup hasn't been um, as strong as we've seen in the past because this used to be an elite pitch. And I still think there is another level for Urias' changeup to come. But the fact that he was able to mix in this pitch that stayed low while his fastball went up um, really was a Blake Snell blueprint in that way for him with the curveball falling in for free real estate and strikes all the time. But it was this big out pitch. I do wonder if he's going to be able to have that 194 batting average allowed on it again. Uh, but if he can get a couple more called strikes on it, just a 7% called strike rate. So when it is in the zone, not relying so much on the on the bat on it, um, which was you know 252, which is actually kind of normal. Um, but that can turn for worse, uh, which is a little bit of, of a worry. But honestly, I mean, right now, Urias, 296 ERA in the year, oh, solid one whip, 26% K rate, and the very low 4.7 walk rate is startling, to say the least. Um, and yeah, you're not expecting 200 innings, but if you can get 180 again, uh, you should be incredibly happy with Urias in the fifth. So, seal of approval. For Julio Urias in the fifth round, that's all you get. I'm just kidding. You're going to get more than that. Um, I'll take what I can get. One is good. <laughs> uh, so sixth round, you went to Alex Bregman as you didn't have a third baseman. What what drew you to Bregman as opposed to, say, Arenado that went later on? Yeah, so this is – you were talking before about you know maybe shortstop is deeper and you don't have to rush for a shortstop, maybe second base is more important. Third base, I'm I'm quickly finding, is the position where I'm going to be – going early and and looking back on this i think i probably would have been better off taking uh machado who went one pick after bogarts in the third and then taking correa who went a handful of picks after bregman in the sixth and i think machado and correa versus bregman and bogarts would have been a a better pair for me Mm. uh and i think i'm probably going to push harder to get a third baseman earlier because i mean you know, Jose Ramirez, I think, is a top five guy. Rafael Devers is, you know, belongs in the second round, if not earlier. Machado in the third, great. And then after that, like, you got Austin Riley was the next third baseman off the board who had a great year this year, but doesn't have a huge track record. Anthony Rendon, who really struggled this year. Bregman, who's been down. Arenado, who's not the guy he once was. And then there's this big gap, and you get Brian Hayes and, and Jonathan India and Yon Mancata, and it's there's just a lot of question marks out there. And so I hit this point here where I was a little concerned that if I didn't take a third baseman soon, I wasn't really sure I was going to get one. I was comfortable with as my starter Bregman versus Arenado is um, it's a little bit of an upside play for me. I think, you know, Arenado is still very, very good, but he's obviously getting older. He's not as good a park as he was before stuff like that. Bregman, there are some real concerns. Like from 2018 to 2019, he had a 15.4% walk rate and a 12% K rate. He was he walked more than he struck out for a two-year period. The last two years, including the short season last year, he was at 11.7 for the walk rate and 13.6% for the strikeout rate. That's that's a a pretty significant shift in the wrong direction. However, <laughs> You still got a guy who's walking 11.7% of the time and only striking out 13.6% of the time. And that provides an awfully nice base to start from. So the challenge with him then is like his barrel rate was down, but it was 6.1% sort of at his best. And it's at 5.8% this year. Um, He had multiple months this year 
where he had a WRC plus over 130. So I, I look at that and it's like that form that he that he showed in 2018 to 2019 when he was one of the best young players in the game, that form is still there. He's tapping into it. He's just not tapping into it often enough. And he had some injury issues this year. And I, I think I'm 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 maybe reaching a little bit for excuses from the like, well, 2020 was a year weird year, and then he had some injury stuff this year. And before his injury stuff, he had this two months of a 130 plus W. Like, there's like these little things I can point to where, um, because of the plate discipline, I think the floor is pretty solid. Because of the flashes he's shown of what he was capable of before, I think the ceiling is really high. And a, a little bit like I was talking about with Sale. I'm at a point with Bregman where I look at it and it's like, I don't believe Arenado is capable of regaining sort of first round form. I do think Bregman might be. Yeah. And so I'll take that shot. I think I'm with you there. Um, a lot of the things underneath don't look like Bregman is a massively different player than he was in 2018, 2019. I can imagine some people saying, well, we found out about the Astros cheating at the end of 2019 and maybe there was some impact there. I would push back and say his swing strike rate is the same. It's still elite at just a 5% rate. His O swing is still just 21%. So if he knows what's coming, I mean, it doesn't really look any different. You'd be, you'd see a higher O swing. You'd you'd, You'd, you'd see more him. You'd see him chasing more. You'd see less hard contact, right? Like the barrel rate going from 6.1% to 5.8% is not like, oh, well now he doesn't know there's curveballs coming. Right, exactly. Like if, if what was happening before was he was barreling up every other curveball because he knew that it was going to be a curveball and now he didn't, you'd see a big drop there. And so exactly. yeah, he's, I don't see any evidence that that's the issue. I think right. the big concern is, was he just sort of playing over his head and maybe this is like, it all looks the same. So which one is the real one? <laughs> so so I would think that I, I do think um, with Bregman that uh, I, I look at these a lot and I I try and think of approach and flow and feel, right? I, I'm a lot about this when it comes to hitters uh, and I mean, pitchers too, but I think two telling stats that we don't really use enough to really get that feel understanding is pull and swing percentage. I, I believe in it a decent amount. Where you can kind of see again, pull rates went up to 52%, but unlike with Semyon, you see a massive swing increase too. And that it often is a case of a guy trying, you know, it could be when it doesn't work out, he's trying to do too much. Uh, and this is a case you mentioned the injuries, and he wasn't quite getting the same results as before, and only had 10% home run five ball rate as opposed to the 18.6 in 2019 and 14 in 2018. Uh, you might think that Bregman's like, ah, oh, it's just not working. I got to do this harder. I got to go more and all of that. And it didn't really work out. And you know, he still has the same max EV and average AV, exit velocity. All that stuff is fine. He's okay. Launch angle was a little bit lower, but it's fine. Uh, I don't really care too much about the averages of those. I think that's just a lot of noise a lot of the time. But just a general, I understand like, yeah, Bregman... Look, he was having a rough patch. He got hurt. He was trying to do a lot in a short amount of time. You know, he overexerted. The skill set is still there with Bregman. I think sixth round is going to be something you're going to look back and go, oh, man, what a, that was a great one to go and get. Um, I can't give it a seal of approval because I'm just, you know, that's my own belief and not actually, <laughs> like, it's not as solid. But um, Bregman's going to be a hotly debated one. And I'm willing to lean on the side of, yeah, okay, Bregman, I do think, is going to turn the corner a bit. I don't think the Astros' offense is also going to get much worse. 
Um, I know Correa could be leaving, but honestly, I'd be shocked if the Astros didn't just extend a hand to him. I mean, uh, the, the whole uh, the baseball hates Correa, <laughs> and the only place that like he'll feel home and comfortable, I think, is still with the Astros. Like, you can't take a villain out of the city and move him somewhere else. Um, sorry for anyone Houston Astros uh, listeners, but you guys understand that that's kind of how Correa has has made himself lately. I'll uh, so be fine that, with you calling him with villain as long as it results in him staying, right? If, right. if that's if that's your end game here, it's like, well, everybody else hates him, so the only place he can play <laughs> is in Houston. Astros fans are going to be like, yeah, he's awful. You guys should all yeah, hate right. him. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so I think that the Astros offense still going to be a great team to be a, a part of for Bregman. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think he's gonna, you know, I think he's set for a, uh, another strong year in Houston, especially given health and only 91 games last year. So hopefully we see, uh, at least 140 next year. Uh, let's move on to the seventh round and it's Brian Reynolds, Brian Reynolds for the, for the pirates. I would not classify entering this year as someone I circled and targeted and thought as, oh yeah, he's totally going to have 93 runs and 90 RBI. With 24 home runs and a 302 average. And in 2019, we knew that the average was pretty real. 314 then. Terrible in 2020. 189. And he came back. He bounced back in such an effective way. What do you see for Brian Reynolds in 2022? So his average, which, as you pointed out, was 302 this year. Three three something. I'm, <laughs> yeah, 302. Out. You got it, right? 302. There we go. See, that, that is how in tune I am with my picks. I know Brian Reynolds' <laughs> average off the top of my head. He also had a 93rd percentile X batting average, though. So, like, this is – it is legit. And it was in 2019. It looks like it was again in 2021. And so, basically, what I'm doing with Brian Reynolds, and there, there's a few guys who I'll do this with, is, like, if 2019 and 2021 look the same, then I'm just going to assume 2020 was a mess for them. It was two months. It was weird. 2020 was a mess for me. So, like, <laughs> I'm willing to show right. some grace here. Um, and so, you know, you look at Reynolds and it's like, we talked before about grabbing Bogarts, who's going to help out with average and that Harper and Simeon aren't going to necessarily help, but shouldn't kill me. Bregman can also help with average. And so all of a sudden with, you know, Bregman, those two good years, even really three good years, going back to 2017, he was a 284, 286, 296 from 2017 to 2019, all of a sudden with, Bogarts and Bregman, if he can regain his form, and Reynolds, those are three guys who can pull my average way up from where it was. And on top of that, I, I started off with with Reynolds lower on my board because I was like, he's sort of empty average, but he he wasn't right. Three, you know, over three hundred average, twenty five home runs, um, or close to twenty five home runs. He's got he steals you like. You know, a handful of bases, three to five bases, something like that. And then those 90 plus runs and RBIs, like this isn't a terrible park to hit on a terrible team. And there's some trade rumors around him. So I sort of look at him and it's like, if in Pittsburgh on that team, he puts up those numbers and there is a possibility that he spends next season literally anywhere else. You know, does he go from... Does he go from a guy who I think can get me, you know, 325, 90, 90, and three or something like that to a guy who can get me 330, 100, 103, right? And all of a sudden, then he looks like an insane value here. Uh, and so this was, 
this is sort of a perfect marriage for me of floor and ceiling where I feel like he can easily repeat what he's been doing. I think he is who sort of we think he is. And there's a possibility he gets out of Pittsburgh and does even better. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, the one thing I do care about when it comes to exit velocity is just showcasing. Can you hit it super hard? And it's seeing essentially a 113 max exit velocity. It's like, okay, yes, you, you can hit the ball super hard. That's a that's a skill set. I can't do that. Uh, so I uh, with Brian Reynolds, keep in mind he batted third for the Pirates, and that helped pad the runs in RBI. It's essentially ideal uh, for your RBI. Not, I mean, you want to be lead off for runs, but still excellent uh, being third. If he does get traded, does Brian Reynolds hit third, or is it more of a fourth, fifth? If it is already a good line, because keep in mind, if you're in a trade for him, typically it's because you are a competitive team and you want to get better, as opposed to a team that doesn't have the number three spot. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like where he could go. And this is for the, for the second time this show, I'll mention that I'm a Cleveland fan and make a pure Homer call and say that I think that Cleveland's got the prospect capital and the need for an outfielder that they would be a perfect (laughs) fit for him. And if he goes to Cleveland straw Ramirez Reynolds, Fran mill is your top four, something like that. Um, I don't think there's a lot of teams though, that he would go to where he's, where he's, dropping much and he's so good like that high average makes him such a good player to put into like a third spot in the lineup where you got guys in front of you on base you got guys behind you who can drive you in like I, I think a lot of teams would put him there now if he ends up with the Astros if he ends up with the Blue Jays like yeah he might drop a little lower but if he ends up with those teams being lower isn't gonna hurt like hitting fifth for the Blue Jays is better than hitting third for the Pirates. Right. No, that, that's that's a really good point. I uh, and Kimai, he's a switch hitter as well. So there are certain teams that say, "Hey, we need a lefty bat." I uh, well, he fits in there, of course, as well. So Brian Reynolds, seventh round. Um, uh, just keep in mind the other outfielders here too: Christian Yelich, Chris Bryant, Randy Rosarina, J.D. Martinez. By yours truly, uh, Jesse Winker. Because I had no idea what outfielders were. Well, yeah, it's J.D. Martinez, uh, Michael Conforto, um, and Mitch Haniger went around the same spot. Um, and we're going to move on to the eighth and ninth rounds, where you have two more starters. So you really like doubling up at times here. Um, and in the eighth round, you went Kling Kershaw, which you think, oh, wow, that's really far. But there was, at this point, the rumblings, oh, Kershaw's not pitching for the postseason. There is this elbow issue, which then pushed him down the ranks. I initially had Kling Kershaw without injury around the 15th uh, or around the fifteenth or 20th starter. Obviously, this changes things now. And you went and got him in the eighth round. What do you expect here? And what, what was your thought process chasing Kershaw? This is purely a gamble that he's healthy. That, that's really all it is, right? The, the, the news that's been coming out is he's not pitching in the postseason, but he doesn't need surgery and he should be ready for spring training. Right. Now, every team says about every player right now. They either are literally on a surgeon's table at this moment or they're totally fine and they'll be ready for opening day. Like there's, right. there's no in between. So I get that this is a gamble, but like you said, you had him... I think on your your final list, he was around like 28th or something on, on your current uh, list. 20th in tier four. Yes. Yeah. And so I don't know. I mean, there's he he went much later than that here. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. 
23, 24. He was, so I took him 25th. It looks like the 25th Mm -hmm. starting pitcher off the board. And so I look at that and it's like, I think that's actually pretty good value based on what we know today. And if he's healthy, it's great value. Right. And so this is, this is another case where, you know, like I said, early on in the draft, I want floor because I don't want to ruin my, my team with my first round pick. In this kind of a league with, you know, 12 teams, 23-man rosters, there are going to be pitchers out there as we go that pop up during the season. There's going to be your Waskar Yanoas and, and guys like that. Uh, there's going to be prospects who come up who are unrostered and can be grabbed. And so I am less anxious about floor than I am with ceiling as I move to pitching later in the draft. I want guys who can... I want to I want to find guys who I can plug into my lineup and never have to think about or I'll cut them and find somebody else. And this is a little bit early to be like, yeah, I mean, if I have to, you know, if I have to cut my eighth round pick, that's not ideal. But if I do, I do. And if I don't and he performs like a fourth round pick, then that's great. Yeah, the the, the quality of pitcher has certainly fallen off at this point. Um, I, when I took Flaherty in the sixth, it was around Giolito and Max Freed. Castillo went in the seventh, Trevor Rogers. And we start to get into that fourth tier for me where, yeah, there are major concerns and question marks of how much this guy will be your stable, you know, number three, or maybe some guys, I think the number four, no, no, number three guys is essentially he's going now. Um, and Kershaw, yeah, it's, it's weird. His, his slider is really good still uh 27 swing strike rate last year is the best that we've seen in ages um if not of his career uh we saw o swings at 46 percent is zone rate of 48 uh surprisingly actually had the highest babbit we've seen in ages uh 317 on the pitch which should come down uh the curveball is still this nice mixed pitch and you know, people think of kershaw they think the curveball is everything but it actually isn't uh it really is that slider thrown nearly 50 percent of the time and this fastball did get crushed a little bit more than usual. 284 at batting average allowed this year uh, for Kershaw's fastball underneath 50% plus percentage for the first time ever, really. Uh, normally around 53% or so on that. So just not as effective of an offering. And that's what led to the 3.56 ERA, but still 3.56 ERA, 102 whip, 29 to 30% strikeout rate across 121 innings. Kershaw was great. And he really, really helped you out this year once again because he is Clinton Kershaw. Uh, so healthy Kershaw is someone that will help you, and that's something to be you know, to think about. Maybe the volume is the is the trade off by other guys in this. You know, Dylan Cease is he going to be consistently effective for you? No, I believe in the ratios more so for Kershaw than I do Dylan Cease. It's just a question of the innings then, and I certainly lean more on. Give me guys that are helpful when they're healthy more than I don't know if his his production is going to be what I want. Uh, because trust me, the waiver wire, waiver wire is full of treats and, and candy to just pick up and grab. It's a candy store waiting for you. Just make sure you don't take the licorice because we all know that's terrible. I uh, So yeah, I, I would I would lean more towards this risk in a 12-teamer than avoid and try and find the more stable. Yeah, I think the the other thing I've done here, and it was part of what what drove me to him over, like, I mean, look at the guys who went right around him. There was a run of five straight pitchers early in the eighth round, Musgrove, Manoa, Kershaw, Frankie Montas, and Shane McClanahan. Um, The thing that stood out to me with him, 
especially given that Musgrove and Manoa had gone before him. I've now got a Red Sox pitcher and two Dodger pitchers, which means I've got three guys who, if they go five innings, are going to get me wins. Sure. Uh, and so that gives me a little bit more freedom later in the draft. Because actually, like, I'm a huge Frankie Montas guy. And I sort of wanted him. And I was like, you know, I don't think he's like, yeah, there's risks with Kershaw, but there's risk with Montas too. And and at least with the Dodgers, I know that when Kershaw goes out there and throws, there's a real good chance he's going to get a W. Absolutely. Uh, and so that really does play into your next pitcher. Uh, that is Pablo Lopez. But right before we get to that, here is a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show Great. So, yeah, Pablo Lopez, I'm a huge fan. Uh, we're just talking about you getting wins, Chris Sale, Urias, and Kershaw. And now you go with a Marlon pitcher and Pablo Lopez. And, hey, maybe maybe the Marlins have a better offense next year, okay? They certainly have the pitching staff to give them these oppor- opportunities for, for wins. But it does also play into the Kershaw pick of, you know, he has a shoulder uh, issue right now. Uh, I shut him down at the end of the year. Uh, and I imagine this pitch, pick is being made with a thought of, like, no, no, he just – He's healthy, he's fine, and I'm excited for what's ahead. Yeah, it's it's very much like I was saying for Kershaw. It's like at this point in the draft, I will take my shot at a guy who is, if we knew for sure that Pablo Lopez was healthy and definitely going to pitch a full season next year, no concerns, he's long gone by the time we get to my ninth pick. Right. So I'm very, very happy to take him here and take that risk. And if it doesn't work, I'll have to I'll have to figure something out. Right? I'll have to play the wire and, and, and solve that. Um, but I just look at what what he's done and he's been improving basically every year. Right. Like if I look at just his strikeout rate minus walk rate, he's gone from 2018 moving forward. Eleven point three percent, fourteen point five percent, seventeen point one percent, twenty one point three percent. His strikeout rate has gotten better every year. His walk rates fluctuated a little bit more, but like he just, he's still, he's still improving and he's only 25. He turns 26 sort of mid spring training next year. And so I I look at, you know, you talked in your, your top 150 about the fact that like he needs a cutter slider to sort of jump from where he is in sort of the top 30th range to being in the top 15. I think I, I think I noted that I took him as the 35th pitcher off the board, but there's upside for him to be in that top 15 range. If he continues to improve, it's a challenge. I don't think likely to happen, but it doesn't have to for this to be a, a good solid pick for me. 
Right. Yeah. It's that's the biggest concern I have is uh, it's it's a changeup that's surprisingly been consistent. You know, when you think of it, you think, oh, this is one of the better changeups out there. Yet it's been about a 17 to 18 percent swing strike rate for three straight years now uh, and hasn't quite been that overwhelming. I'm throwing my changeup and I know that I'm going to get out of every situation doing that which has opened the door for some starts where he needs to rely on just fastball command in order to get through it. And I will say, Pablo Lopez has an excellent, excellent pair of fastballs. It's a sinker that has an O-swing of nearly 44%, which is elite. It's what you want in a sinker. Pitches that start inside corner, go inside righties. They swing at it anyway. It generates a ton of outs. Then you also have a four-seamer that he actually started leaning on more so than the sinker, which I love to see. Um, from Pablo, and it was an effective pitch for him as well. Batting average allowed on that was just 216. And that was really the 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 story of the year uh, for, for Pablo Lopez was that he has these two fastballs that he commands really well. Changeups are a very good pitch, but not quite elite, but they are, you know, it, it's getting close to that. Well, he did have a, a curveball that he did get in for a, a decent called strike rate. But it isn't that pitch. It isn't the one that I, I I really want it to be. And there was a day or two I remember where he really felt the curveball. And it was really working. And then it, that was just a kind of a moment as opposed to something that he really truly developed into. Sometimes the cutter shows up and gets some called strikes. And that's a nice thing. But until I see one of those two truly take that leap... I don't know if we're going to see Pablo Lopez as the kind of guy we really want. I mean, you're saying, Nick, what are you talking about? It was 103 innings, 298 ERA, 111 whip, 27.5% K rate. Like, what more is there to do? And I would say I don't know how sustainable that is uh, with the current approach and for me to really, truly push him. But the fact that he's going six innings often for, for the Marlins, they will let him go that full six is really exciting. And I just hope that also, you know, the, the injury questions we have right now are absolutely nothing come March. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what it comes down to. If, he, if he's healthy, this pick is, I think, sort of similar to what I've said from other picks. This pick is good value as long as he's healthy. And if it's, if he does take another step forward, if he does add that pitch or, or you know, make some small improvements and make some gains, then it again becomes just a great value. So, but there's risk. And if he's hurt, he's hurt and I'll have to replace him. But I'm willing to take that risk and deal with playing the wire for that upside. Sure. All right. So here we are nine rounds in. And I said, oh, yeah, we're going to take no time at all in the first 10 or so. And of course, this is just this is what I do. This is all my fault. All my fault. I hope everybody <laughs> listening is like, no, this is what we wanted. We want three hours of this. OK, <laughs> uh, so Josh Bell is in the 10th round here and. I uh, walk me through this. I know you don't have a first baseman to you. Was this, I mean, it seems like you thought this was the best first baseman on the board. So keep in mind that Josh Bell's outfield eligible. Ah, interesting. So part of this was an outfield thing. Um, and if you look at Josh Bell, I, I think people are just sleeping on his season a little bit. So if you look at his WOBA and now WOBA is not obviously the best fantasy measure, sure. but his WOBA was three fifty two this year. That among outfielders, outfield eligible players with 500 plus plate appearances, that was 19th. So he was, That's and there's great. a bunch of guys ahead of him, three or four who are either middle infield or third base eligible who might not actually be outfielders for fantasy purposes. So he's a guy who among sort of fantasy outfielders is borderline a top 15 bat. And he went 
almost 30th among outfielders in this draft. Uh, And that doesn't account for the fact that if you just look at him after May 1st, he went from a 352 Woba for the season to a 369 from May 1st Mm. on. Right. He had the struggles last year. They carried over this year. He seems to have solved that problem and put it behind him. Um, just use a more sort of fantasy relevant number on the Rasball player Raider. He was number 111 on that player Raider. Kyle Schwarber is 110 on that player Raider. Kyle Schwarber, a year younger, but roughly similar age. Both are outfield and first base eligible. Schwarber went almost two rounds earlier than I got Bell. And so from my perspective, this is just discount price on Kyle Schwarber. He is that good. And we've seen him be that good in the past. And so that's, that's what this comes down to is I think he's, I think people are sleeping on what a great year he had because he was so bad in 2020 and had such a a rough start this year. Plus the nationals, he was just sort of hidden there. The biggest question I think for, for Josh Bell is you see the 37% fly ball rate in 2019 that allowed 37 home runs. Um, and a lot more production there, but in 2021, 26.5% fly ball rate. Um, and that has been the thing for ages. I remember actually talking to Jeff Zimmerman in 2018, uh, before tout. And I said, all right, Jeff, like, who's your guy? Who's the one that you like, you're, you know, who you won't tell anybody about that you're noticing. And he whispered to me like, Josh Bell is starting to hit the ball in the air. I really like this. Um, and, uh, and that essentially, you know, is what played out in 2019, Went back down, of course, this past year. So I do have some worry about, uh, you know, looking at 2021 and thinking, oh, he's going to get back to 2019. But, hey, he doesn't have to, right? Uh, it was a 25% uh, home run five ball rate, the highest he's ever had. I think that's okay. He crushed the ball. Uh, stat cast hard hit rate, which I don't always absolutely love because it is based on bad ball event and not necessarily plate appearances. But 51.5% does not lie. I mean, that's that's crushing it a lot. X slugging at 474, X batting average of 273. Um, the shift obviously has something to do with that, I believe, uh, where he got a little bit burned by that at times. But the strikeout rate down to 18% is fantastic. The walk rate still at 11% is fantastic. Uh, very solid inside of that that lacking Nationals lineup. Um, he's still going to be there. He's still going to be batting likely th- fourth uh, for them as, as Soto bats third. Maybe that changes. Maybe they even push Soto up to second and Bell becomes third. Um, so the RBI chances will be there. The runs not as much. I, I Maybe 80 if he has that full season. So the 144. But I don't really anticipate anything close to the 95 that he had in 2019 or rather 94. Uh, so, yeah, Josh Bell, I think you make a really great point about being outfield eligibility because uh, generally you find it's easier to find a first baseman in season than it is a, as an outfielder with his production. So really, really good call there. Um, he'll be on my my list. I don't know if 10th round is exactly right. It seems right. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about the other guys that went after for the outfield. Actually, there were no outfielders in the 10th or the 11th round, save for Bellinger and Bell, I guess. But uh, Framil Reyes went after, Kalanick went after, Trent Grisham, that is your pick. Joey Gallo, Soler, Hayes, Renfro, etc. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Josh Bell, pretty solid among that crew. So I like this pick here in the 10th. We're going to move on, 11th round. Buster Posey, you got your catcher. Was he someone you circled and or you were just like, oh, hey, Buster Posey's here. A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. <laughs> sure, yeah. He- I, you know, I've always been, I've always been a guy who waits on catcher because I've historically, I felt like there are like two or three good catchers and the rest are all 
equally bad. And sure. so if I'm not going to pay up for one of the two or three, then who cares? I'll just take whoever's left at the end, basically. Um, this year, I feel like that's not true. And I, I look at the catcher position and like, obviously, Salvi had a great year. Will Smith with the Dodgers. Grandal is very good. Real Muto. And then there's Posey and, and Wilson Contreras, who are sort of the other it's sort of that group who I'm like, I trust any of these guys. And I feel like there's such a drop off after them that if I don't get one of them, then, then I'm worried. Then I actually mm-hmm. feel like I'm, I'm losing production in a position where other guys are getting it. Grandal had gone earlier in the 11th round. And so now I was looking at either Posey or Contreras as I wanted one of those two. I like Posey better. So I took him uh, just because I didn't want to risk neither of them making it back to me. Now, in retrospect, Wilson Contreras didn't go till the 15th round. Um, I should have, and so I should have waited. Like, it, but at the time, I didn't feel like that was the case. It was Posey looked rejuvenated this year. There's nothing that I see in his profile that really makes me think he can't continue to be very productive as a catcher. I also think that, um, I think there's a good chance that Belt is gone, who we'll talk about later. And when he's gone, and there's room at first base, and Joey Bart's ready to come up, and there's very likely an NLDH next year, very possibly an NLDH, maybe an NLDH. I, I think all of a sudden you might get more games out of Posey and and keep him well rested and and continue to let him stay fresh. And I, I wanted a catcher who was going to produce, and there just aren't that many of them. Yeah, the, uh, you make a really good point that we're going to talk about more, I think, through all these moxes, expecting the NLDH and how that affects certain players and a lot of times it is catchers Wilson Contreras will be one as well uh that we do expect more playing time for him as of the catcher position and it might be something um that we do see all of a sudden NL catchers get just in general bumps up because of it Will Smith is another um that hey he's gonna be going more games because of this uh, so that is definitely something to consider. It, the question is really a 20.5% homer five ball rate for Posey this year is by far his career high and the previous four seasons had all been underneath 10%. Yes, I am including that 9.8% in 2016, but it still applies. Uh, and so you saw 18 home runs from him, uh, 68 runs, 56 RBI, 113 games. Uh, you know, I was going to say, oh, well, that doesn't seem too impactful and not the most, you know, not something that I feel that I need to go off and get, but at the same time, right. If you're expecting more plate appearances in general, because of the DH, well then that does counteract that. And the average three four, I mean, sure. three forty nine batting average uh, in play, a BABIP that is two seventy eight expected BABIP or sorry, a batting average. Um, still very good getting that from catcher. Uh, it's actually very interesting. The um, Right now, 11th round is when the Launch Angle podcast with Rob Silver and Jeff Zimmerman. Uh, if you guys didn't know this, at First Pitch Arizona, they did a live podcast talking about this mock draft. And they were very, very kind to bring me on to talk about it as well. And they took a, a mock of the mock between rounds 11 and 16, essentially drafting the players in each round and going around saying who would they would take in that round if they could just have them. Uh, and Rasmani Grandal was a clear, yes, you should be getting him. Um, so there is a gap to them, which I think I do agree with, with Grandal versus Posey, them going about five spots away. But you were after. And I would have taken you know? Grandal. If he were there, exactly. I would have taken him. Right. 
So that was, uh, you know, something to think about about where the cliffs are with these positions. There is a clear one there. But yeah, Posey, Contreras are the next two, it does seem like. Um, and I totally understand going after Posey here. I got. I, I have to be better as a host to push this through. So Mike Clevenger uh, was your next one. And you have four starters now. And this is your fifth. This might be the time where you're thinking, okay, just go and chase the upside. And you went with Clevenger. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. I mean, like I said, I, I I really like to find. I want my. I'd rather have a starting pitcher who's going to be an easy cut or an ace than find a guy who has like solid floor and may not really do that much for me. And I don't know. I mean, again, at this point in the draft, if you look at the guys who are going, if you said one of the pitchers who went in the what is this, the 12th round we're looking at now. There's, you know, of Verlander, Clevenger, Evaldi, Ian Anderson, Chris Bassett, Adam Wainwright. If I told you one of those guys was going to be a top 15 pitcher next year, Verlander and Clevenger are the only real candidates for that. Sure. And Verlander yeah. went right before I picked Clevenger. So <laughs> I took the guy <laughs> who was there. I think I would have taken Clevenger over Verlander anyways. I think mm-hmm. Rick- Verlander is a unique specimen and at his age i I, there are few people at his age who i trust more than him to recover and get himself back in game shape and all that it's still a longer road at his age than it is at clevenger's right it's it's that simple yeah clevenger is younger and you you generally expect younger guys to handle tommy john better than the old guys Uh, we don't really know uh but clevenger's slider is elite and i expect it to still be elite when he returns throwing 95 miles per hour in a fastball he's a very very good pitcher the padres are going to lean on him um the amount of innings is going to be a question i'd probably say 150 160 that's typically what we see when returning from tommy john uh but you never know you never know if the guys are feeling good they'll just keep going out there and the most annoying thing that we do at this time of the year is try to predict innings because, my lord, it is so difficult and it shapes so much and we just got to throw our hands in the air. We just do not know often. But with Clevenger, let's just say 150, 160 is a good foundation to build from there. Yeah, 12th round sounds about right for me. And I imagine come March, it's going to be higher once we showcase that he's healthy and good to go. Um, 13th round, Trent Grisham. It's a popular pick, by the way, in this uh, mock of mock drafts was Trent Grisham. Talk me through this one. Yeah, I was uh, I was super I listened to that pod and I was super curious to hear what people said. I was excited to hear them talk about Grisham because my, my notes to myself, I was making notes as the draft was going on. And when I took Grisham, I said, is this too early? It feels early, but it also feels kind of late. <laughs> I wasn't really sure what to make of my own pick here. <laughs> he, he was off to such a great start, such a great start. And looked like he was having that breakout that everyone had, you know, I was not alone believing that Trent Grisham was going to break out. He is a popular breakout pick. He was well on his way to just having an absolutely huge season. And then he got hurt. And when he came back from the injury, he was bad. I mean, just, he just was, he was not good for most of the season, but his plate discipline all looked about the same. And his big issue was he just wasn't hitting the ball as hard. And he's got, right, his his exit velocity went down. His hard hit rate went down. He had this, his issue was a heel issue on, I believe, his back foot, right? So the foot he's pushing off of. I have no inside knowledge. There's been no reports of him playing through pain or anything like that. The only thing I know is 
He got hurt. They said it was nothing. It would be the minimum. He'd be out 10 days. He ended up being out more like two, two and a half weeks. It took him longer to come back. And then he didn't seem to have the same burst behind his bat that he did before. So I think there's a very good chance that what we saw from him was just an inability to really drive the ball because of that injury and because he was trying to play through it. And he's, he's so, he's such, he's like a good defender. He's got good speed. Like he brings enough else to the plate that I could see them leaning on him to play anyways. And he's still, despite sort of a bad season and and limited playing time, 15 home runs, 13 stolen bases, 61 runs, 62 RBIs. Uh, I think the, the big question is, did he permanently lose the spot at the top of that Padres lineup? But I think if he comes back and is performing the way I think he will, which is like he did earlier in the season, maybe not quite to that level, but more like that, He's going to end up back in that leadoff spot, and he's going to be 20-20 with 100 runs scored. Um, and this late in the draft, I'm, I'm real happy to get that. Now, the, the downside here with him is the average is not great. Uh, you know, he had a 242 this year, but even last year when he was when he was better, he had a 251. His minor league averages, um, leaving aside an insane 2019 where he had a 381 average in AAA, his averages in the minors haven't been very high. So he is not going to hit for high average, but he gets on base, which allows him to steal some bases. He hits for enough power. He like he'll provide everything else. And it's another, it's another upside pick for me. It's another guy who it's like, if if he had come out in the middle of this draft or before this draft and said, My heel was never right and I could never swing, and I'm having surgery now to repair whatever the issue is, and I'll be totally fine. He goes four or five rounds earlier than this. Yeah, he's going to be 25 next year. Keep that in mind that he's still developing despite all of this. He's not, we don't know who he is yet. Uh, And this idea that he is a 250 average guy forever, hey, maybe not. Maybe, you know, maybe he continues to develop, gets a a better eye or at least different approach so that he's not over the 20% strikeout mark. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, he takes those steps forward and he could go back into being leadoff. I, I do wonder... Um, a 352 on base percentage in 2019. I I guess yeah, that is that is worthy of a leadoff spot. Um, I, I can't rule out the idea that you know the Padres do some things, get a de facto leadoff hitter, and all of a sudden, yeah, we're going to see more seven, eight, nine of Grisham, and that is certainly a major risk with us. It's the 13th round. I think you've been discussing a lot, or we have the quality of outfielders is kind of weird. Um, and taking the chance on someone like Grisham that can be a 2020 season, if not more even, uh, in 2022 is very, very enticing. Um, we're going to go to the 14th round. Brandon Belt, who in that in that podcast, they could not fawn enough over this pick of Brandon Belt in the 14th round as just an incredible season in just 97 games, 381 plate appearances. Brandon Bell had 29 home runs, a WOBA of 406, 65 runs in 59 RBI from the first base position. How are you feeling about this pick? And, and do you see this, th- these gains really sticking for next year? Yeah. I mean, I think the interesting thing is a lot of them are gains that stuck from last year, right? So he, Increase, you know, he had been a guy who had been sort of a 10 to maybe as high as 15% home run per fly ball rate. And then last year in 2020, he was at 19.1% and this year at 26.9%. And that's backed up. His exit velocities have been career highs. Like everything has moved up and it's now 
it has sort of stuck from the shortened season through what unfortunately for him was another shortened season due, due to injury. Um, do I think he's going to repeat exactly what he just did? No. And if I did, I would have taken him eight rounds ago. <laughs> like that, that's just, you know, there's, there's just no way, but he doesn't have to. And I, I do think there's a chance. Well, first of all, for whatever reason, San Francisco, like that park seems to be playing much more power friendly the last couple of years. And so right. I, I think that maybe the park isn't hurting him as much as it used to. Uh, same thing with Posey. When we talked about Posey sort of having a power outburst, Sure, but I also yeah. think there's a good chance Belt moves on and ends up somewhere else. And so my bigger concern with him is not the is not significant regression on his performance when he plays. Um, although I think there will be some regression on that. I don't think he'll do what he did, but I think he'll I think he'll still be good. My bigger concern is does he stay on the field? And my hope is is another case where you know the NLDH. Let's say he stays in San Francisco if him and Bart and Posey can sort of share DH and first base and catcher, then they all could stay a little bit fresher. And so maybe that keeps him on the field a bit more. Um, but I mean, if he's going to hit me 29 home runs in less than a hundred games, that's fine. Yeah, I'll take it. Th- that's, that's pretty dang good. Uh, but right. That's a good question. Does he stay in San Francisco? I mean, seems like he should. There are a lot of these guys that you just can't envision them not being I'm so on that torn team. on him. Because on the one hand, I feel like that park has always been a, a challenge for him. And obviously not the last couple of years, but it, it, for, throughout his career. And like, I would love to see him like, like let him go off in Colorado. Yeah. Let him aim for that oh, short porch Brandon in New Belt York. In like I would love to see that. Yeah. On the other hand, he's a giant. Right. Like he just feels like a giant. He feels like he should continue to be a giant. So I know. this is something I'm always so conflicted on about, um, free agency and whatnot on one side i want players to get paid <laughs> you know i don't want the owners to be saving money i want guys to get paid which means free agency is a good thing you have you know uh, more demand in one supply of you but the other side of it yeah you want players to be drafted on a team and stick with that team as much as you can right so uh it's it's give and take there but wherever belt lands we hope it's a good park for him we hope it's a good situation and yeah, I hope that he can replicate. Uh, I mean, not necessarily a twenty-five percent homer five ball rate, but as long as it's just that twenty percent, that should be pretty dang solid. Fifteenth uh, round, you went with another big bopper in Hunter Renfro for the Red Sox. Uh, what made you take Renfro here? Cheap power, right? We're at, we're at a point now where it's like you're you're no longer. Maybe not at all, but like Grisham was really the last pick I made where I was like, this guy could fill up every category except average. Like he could do a little bit of everything for me. Now you're at a point where like I'm I'm starting to build out my bench and I'm starting to think about in a head-to-head matchup, who's a guy who if I'm, you know, I think there's whether daily moves, if I'm like, okay, it's Friday and I've got to figure out who's playing this weekend and I'm tied in home runs. Who's a guy I can throw into the lineup and help with that? And so I start to think through that as I get this late in the draft is who fits the team in that regard. And, and Renfro, man, I mean, when he came off the board, Duvall was here, I think. Um, oh, yeah. Obviously, El Garcia uh, was here. Lourdes Gurriel, Adolis Garcia, uh, Avisel and Adolis Garcia, AJ Pollock, Trey Mancini. Yeah, g- honestly, um, Guriel was probably the miss. I think I should have taken Guriel now that I'm looking at this. Hmm. Um, 
I, to me, Garcia, Duvall, who actually went a couple rounds later, like I, I like Renfro better than those guys. And I, I think that like, I'm, I'm more comfortable just penciling him in for the role that will get him the 30 home runs he's going to hit. Sure. I think I just, I don't know what happened with Guriel. I should have taken Guriel. <laughs> now, now I'm having regrets. Oh, that's funny. I mean, I will say this about Renfro. 31 home runs, 89 runs, uh, 96 RBI. I mean, that, that just doesn't come from anything. Uh, same home run five ball rates. He, he pretty much was him. He just got the playing time uh, for 144 games and 572 uh, uh, plate appearances. Batting average was higher than we've seen, um, which isn't necessarily something that should stick around. The expected batting average was right there, though, at 257. I hope that those gains can stick around. So I, 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 it's fine to find someone that can produce on this level this late in your draft. Now, keep in mind, we don't really know if he's going to be a five hitter, six hitter. Is he going to be in the two spot as he's had this year as well? Uh, Renfro can bounce around a lot. This could just have been a career year, and that's that. But Renfro, I mean, finding that kind of thing in the 15th round, taking a chance on that, yeah. I, I have no no qualms with that, especially when you're going to drop your strikeout rate from 31 and 27 down to 22.7% this past year. So good stuff there. Uh, we're going to move on to Luis Urias, as you had to get all the Uriases on your team. Got to collect them all. Uh, Got to do that. This is, uh, this is, of course, with Milwaukee. Uh, talk to me about it. I've really thought much about him this year. Obviously, came over from... Uh, San Diego, I believe in the Grisham trade before 2020, uh, and came out with 23 home runs, 77 runs, 75 RBI, and 150 games for Milwaukee. Played at just third base. Actually, you know, it's third base and shortstop and second base, so an ultra-utility guy uh, for the Brewers. Is that where you're going with here, just someone you can swap around on your bench? Yeah, so this is the other thing that happens that I think people underrate in head-to-head leagues is the ability to fill out a lineup every single day because mm. volume matters. And even in a, even over the course of a weekly matchup, having a guy, and, and this becomes a theme with some of my later picks. I, I talked about it earlier too, but the fact that he plays all the infield positions except first base and the fact that I have outfielders who can also play first base and I've got Simeon as a starter who can play second base or short. So like I can plug him in anywhere, but on top of that, I mean, he he hit 23 home runs this year. You know, he stole five bases. Like I said, he had, he had good run in RBI numbers. He does a lot of stuff, and he's still, like, I feel like we've been talking about him forever because we were talking <laughs> about him as a prospect with San Diego, and there was all this, like, oh, will he ever hit for enough power? And everyone believed he had the hit tool, but did he have the power there? And all this stuff. He's still only 24. And so... Well, I don't know that there's sort of a secondary power breakout coming from him. I think, you know, they, he hit 23 this year. I think 20-ish is a, is a reasonable target. I do think he can become a better hitter and hit for a higher average and then potentially move up that lineup and get more runs in RBIs. And so I think there's some upside in this pick. And if all he does is what he did last year and I can plug him in off my bench at any spot, I'm, I'm real happy with that. Honestly, this is a discount. Uh, second base, yeah, whatever you need here. You've you've missed on any of the guys. The second base, shortstop, even third base. Um, the fact that Arias raises launch angle to fourteen degrees as opposed to the nine or ten that he's had in the past, or even two point three in twenty twenty, he's getting lift on the ball. And we saw the thirty eight percent fly ball rate finally last year it was twenty one percent even his twelve games before, but then thirty one and then eighteen. 
He's getting the ball in the air. And a 16% home run five ball rate isn't so crazy. Isn't so like, oh, how dare he, especially in Milwaukee. Uh, that can be sustainable. And to find this kind of pop uh, at that position um, is certainly valuable. Not to mention, yeah, prospect growth is not linear. And we might see him squeak into the top four of the lineup at some point. He was more around the five, six spot. Actually, the beginning of the year, uh, he did get chances in the leadoff spot, fell that back down. And we might see that again from him, which may raise that 77 run total a little bit higher as well. More RBI chances, too. Is there something fun here? I I don't know if he's necessarily destined for a 250 average either. Uh, I kind of I kind of dig this. He has a 240 uh, expected batting average, but who knows with Luis Arias, especially if that launch angle is sticking as it is. There's certainly opportunity for him to uh, do something pretty dang cool out of the second base spot. Yeah, the, the average upside for him is less about anything I saw in him last year and more about the fact that like this is a guy who regularly put up you know 300 ish averages in the minors whose hit tool was always sort of his carrying tool as a prospect and so it's much more of a like i never knew if he'd be able to get to 20 home runs i wondered if he'd be like a single digit home run guy with a high average and so he's turned into something very different than i expected but that hit tool still exists and he could still find more from that and even if it comes at the expense of a little bit of the power, I, he doesn't have to hit 20 home runs to be valuable, especially if he can raise that average. Right. Yeah. It's a uh, Luis Arias. If uh, you know, if you keep lowering your K rate every year, uh, now it's down to 20.4%. If that turns into 18, if you, you know, it may be a thing of, hey, I'm raising fly balls. So sorry, I'm not going to have the 50% plus ground ball rate anymore, which would help average. But there might be some middle ground here, 260 and change. Uh, with 20 to 25 home runs that we get really, really happy at. So definitely keep him on your radar moving forward. Uh, to, in the 17th round, just like Clevenger, you went to the well of more upside starters in Denilson Lamette. And it's not much really to say here, but I mean, work work me through uh, what you see for Lamette. Yeah, it's, a, it's the same conversation we had about Clevenger. It's just at right. this point in the draft, he's the, you know, when I look at the guys who are going around here, Mize has some upside, but I'm not a huge fan. Eduardo Rodriguez, Wade Miley went that round. Carlos Carrasco. You know, in the next round, you get Joe Ryan and Jesus Lazardo, who are, I think, more exciting than some of those other names. But among those guys, like Lamette's a guy who's like, he's done it before. He's been, he, he has shown us he can be one of the best pitchers in baseball. There is a very reasonable chance that he is hurt and that he'll never get back to what he what he showed us. And that's that but I'm drafting the upside here. Yeah, it's uh, it's so annoying. It was 97 in 2020 when it was that ridiculous season. Um, and now it's 95 and change. And the question is just, all right, what are we going to do here? Uh, when he does pitch, is it going to be great? Or is this this middle ground of being able to leave or even? Uh, that's the headache, but I'm with you. 17th round, it's just... You might as well chase this and see what you're going to do. And also, I I really want to emphasize when it comes to drafting your starters and 12-teamers, plan for the guys that you know you're going to make a decision on in April. Uh, We will see out of the gate what's up with Lamette. Um, Is he throwing hard still? Is he starting for the Padres? Is he healthy or not? And if it's not, just you can rid yourself of the headache and give yourself the opportunity to get a Wainwright, to get a Rodon and Ray and so on. That's so important to do because if you take these middling pitchers, 
say like a Wade Miley, Aaron Savali or so. If you take that, you're not going to make your decision in April and you won't know what the season holds yet. So I, I'm someone that wants to lean in on, hey, April decisions are important and Lamette will certainly help with that. I was upset to see him go. I was uh, I was heavily considering. I, I mean, I'd taken so many starters, <laughs> but uh, seeing Lamette this late, I, I mean, I feel like this is a seal of approval. Um, yeah, yeah. Seeing everyone else around, it's like the clear winner. So yeah, Dylan Lamette seal of approval, seventeenth round. Nice uh, for that one. Eighteenth um, round, you went finally to get a closer in Ken Giles. Uh, do you think that he can take over the spot in Seattle? Yeah, I mean, I. My guess is, like I've said, you know, I do live in Seattle, but I'm not in any closed door meetings with the Mariners. But like they signed him intending him to be their closer and they worked with him through rehab intending him to be their closer. And while they've got like they've got a bunch of good relievers, right? It's, a, it's been a it was a very impressive bullpen this year, but it's not like they've got some like clear cut basically since they traded Graveman, right? Multiple people have been in the role. They've all been good. They have lots of people who could be the closer, but like he is the one sort of capital C closer on the roster. And as much as the like, you know, analytically minded baseball fan of me is like, you should mix and match your closers and you shouldn't have a sec. Like most teams still don't do that. Most teams still have the guy they go to players like to have that role. Um, there's a little bit, I think, with Giles of what we saw with Kimbrell this year, where like the White Sox have talked about it since the season ended, that like Kimbrell really didn't like setting up. He's a closer and he wants to be a closer. And my my sense is that Giles is going to be more in that mold where they're they're going to show up and if he's healthy and ready to go, they're going to just make him their closer and let the other guys sort of fit in around him. And if I'm wrong to your April decisions, like. A couple weeks into April, he'll either be the closer or he'll be pitching terribly (laughs) or he'll be pitching really well in a setup role where it's very clear that he's going to graduate to being a closer soon. Right. And I'll be able to make that call and move on one way or the other. So, I mean, keep in mind, before Ken Giles was was hurt, uh, we're talking a slider that had a 28 percent, then a 28 percent and then a 30 percent swing strike rate the past three years. That's 2018, 2020. I, despite, you know, not throwing much at all in 2020, just 3.2 innings, it still was, yeah, it's the slider. So I'm hoping the velocity could come back to being 97, 96, uh, that we've saw before, but yeah, he's a de facto closer and it's Paul Seawald is the other option. Of course, in, uh, in Seattle, it's got a lot of helium. Uh, he went two picks before this one. So I won't even uh, ask about like Seawald versus Giles. Cause he didn't have a choice and here was Giles, but Giles does have more of the pedigree uh, for it, and I can imagine Seawall being more of the, uh, as you're as you're mentioning, really the the more fireman guy. While Giles is the ninth inning role, yeah. I, I was targeting Giles. I, I Giles was a guy I planned to take. Seawald wasn't on my radar. I mean, he well, would have been. Tell him later. you said that. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> just, don't, just don't tell Mikey I said that. Yeah, there it is. I'm in. I'm involved with these front office talks, so I will say this now. Um, <laughs> Miles Straw was your next pick in the 19th round, uh, and I imagine. I mean, you're just chasing the speed here. 30 stolen bases. Uh, surprising. 86 runs and 271 average for Straw. As someone who's just been this utility, you hope you get the stolen bases this day because Houston didn't really touch him. He got traded. Now he's in Cleveland and. 
I, I mean, he really excelled in this situation, um, batting leadoff for pretty much all the time for Cleveland, as opposed to the bottom of the lineup before. Do you see that that, that Cleveland is just going to stick him in the lineup spot and you feel, okay, great. I have 30 stolen bases for next year. I think so. I think looking at straw and what he's done since he come to what, since he came to Cleveland, the lack of outfield options in Cleveland and sort of generally what people around the team seem to be saying, like, I think he is going to be their starting center fielder and leadoff hitter basically every day until he proves he doesn't belong. Right. And he gets on base at a decent clip. He's not a, he's not like a bad option for a leadoff hitter. Right. I mean, I think since he came to Cleveland and got installed in that role, he had a 362 on base percentage. So, and you don't really want him hitting anywhere else in your lineup, except for like eighth or ninth, because he has no power. So he's not driving anyone in. Um, but this goes back to it's, it's the it's the other half of the Hunter Renfro conversation we had, right? I want a guy who, when it's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday in a week, and I need to steal some bases or score some runs to try to win a category, I can just plug him in. I can put him. I can bench. You know, I bench Renfro, and I put in Straw, and hope he steals me a base or two over the weekend and scores me a few runs. Um, and so he can he can win me a category in a weekly matchup. And so that's you know. That's basically it. He doesn't give me much else, but I don't need him to do anything else because I'm only going to use him when I need him. Right. It's really a, a uh, you got to understand. You're not going to get home runs. You're not going to get RBI. That's just not what's going to happen. We hope that the 270 average sticks around and the 285. You could say that he had with Cleveland. Um, the expected batting average was a lot lower, but then again, maybe that doesn't take in count sprint speed as much. Uh, I need to go into uh, my understanding of X batting average is that it takes launch angle and exit velocity for the most part. And that's about it. And like where it lands and less about the actual players or all this other stuff. Um, so 253 X batting average versus 271. But uh, it's, it's, it's a case where, okay, are you willing to make this gambit? Then you got to plan around this before you do so, because yeah, you can't survive with just that one category. Um, as you're focusing, sure, you can say runs are, are certainly a positive as well. And maybe maybe the average is too. But you really need to ensure that you have those cheaper, empty power in RBI guys to pair with straw here. Uh, with the 20th round, I'm mean, back to starter. And this is someone that is weird. I had a lot of talks with Eno about Rasmussen this, uh, during uh, First Pitch Arizona. Fascinating to me. I want to hear your take on Drew. Yeah, it's another another upside pick for me. And, I, you know, I took Straw in the 19th thinking Eric Lauer or Contrell would be available to me with my next pick. And then Schwebzy took them both at the turn. <laughs> and so uh, Schwebzy and I are no longer friends. Uh, although he was he was on keeper cut this week so maybe we are still friends but um i was very mad at him for like five minutes and then basically looked at who else was out there and i you know the 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 risk with rasmussen is obviously that the rays are gonna ray and he's gonna throw like three innings twice a week or whatever like who knows what they're gonna do with him sure um but this is another case where like if he's not throwing enough innings to get wins, if he's not pitching well early in the year, I can sort of move on from him. I don't know. I mean, could I have taken like Jamison Talon who finished the season a little bit better? Could I have, I don't know. There, there's a bunch of guys around here. Yeah. I probably could have taken. And so I took Rasmussen and it was, it's an upside play for me. Yeah. With Rasmussen, he throws hard. 
two-thirds of the time. We're talking 97-mile-per-hour fastball. It did well for him this year, batting average of just 219. He gets a lot of ground balls with it. Actually, it's pretty much exactly the 50% mark he had in the small sample we saw in 2020. Uh, Rasmussen doesn't have much else. It's a slider he threw uh, the other third of the time. And it has a really nice shape to it. You feel like this should be a good swing strike rate pitch. It was just a 12% swing strike rate and a 15% called strike rate, which means that it was just a 27% CSW. I want more out of that pitch for me to really believe more in, in Rasmussen. It did have good results, 149 batting after loud on Rasmussen's slider. But the Rays, I think, are a team that are all about optimizing uh, innings. You know, they, uh, you know, again, I, I mentioned, you know, like 20 times, but the you made a lot of good points about how teams are saying, hey, where is the optimization point of your innings? In general, pitchers get worse as the game goes on. So there are certain guys where they fall off harder than others. And they're trying to say, you you are a guy that goes this long. You are a guy that goes that long. Rasmussen seems like to the Rays a five inning guy. Um, and that's just what they do. Who knows how they craft their rotation for next year? Who knows if Rasmussen can develop more things and make that slider better so that he's, you know, he can go the third time through consistently uh, for the Rays. Uh, it could be someone he gets open for, and then all of a sudden it's five innings, and you're okay with that because then you get more win chances too, and you also face worse hitters when he does pitch. So there's lots of like there. I, For me, I don't think I'm going to get the clarity that I need uh, early on this season. So... Maybe I will, maybe I won't. Maybe I'll see the new pitch. I'm like, oh, everything is great. I get a feeling the Rays are going to Ray, as you mentioned. And I don't want to chase that personally. But I don't blame anyone that does. So hopefully Rasmussen becomes that guy. I mean, he has a velocity for it. Uh, and he's definitely someone to be monitoring to see how the Rays are going to be using him in 2022. Uh, we're going to move on. The last three picks here. And I really like this one in 21. Um, and his name is Ty France, 18 home runs, 85 runs, 73 RBI, and a 291 average for the Mariners. And I got to say, it is hard to find someone with this good of an average that you can pretty much buy into this late in the draft. Yeah, and that's that's so that's exactly what this comes down to. So I I in looking at building my bench, right, I bought power from Renfro as a guy who I can plug in for power. I bought the stolen bases from Straw. I got a little bit of multiple things from Urias, including the upside and multiple positions. France qualifies at first base, second base, and third base. Provides average when you need it. And I, I don't I, I don't know if I'm just wish casting here, but like I just don't believe that 18 home runs is his ceiling. Mm. I, I mean you know, in, in 2019, he hit 34 home runs across AAA and the majors with San Diego. In 2018, he hit 22 home runs across AA and AAA. I think there's more to his power. His, his max exit velocity was a 111.1 this year. The launch angle's a little bit on the low side. So he's got he's to raise, you know, a few more fly balls, I think, would help him quite a bit. But like... I think that there's power he can unlock that he hasn't unlocked yet. If he doesn't, then he's a solid fantasy player who plays at three positions and makes my bench a lot more fungible. And if he does unlock that power, then he's a guy who, to your point about Urias before, like somewhere that I missed at any other position, 
he can suddenly plug himself in if he if he finds that next power level. Yeah, I mean, the fly ball rates need to go up. Uh, ground ball rates went up, uh, and fly ball stayed at 31%. Ground ball went up to 46 Launch angle overall came down a little bit. Uh, and I will say the ex- expected batting average was just 267 as opposed to the 291 he actually had. So there is something. You know, I said it was a lock, but maybe not. Uh, we'll see how that goes for Ty France. But, yeah, this is someone in a in a pretty good or good position inside of the, the Mariners batting second by the end of the year, a lot of thirds and fourths as well. Uh, and that's what you want. It, it's something to be said about you just want to draft guys that are batting second, third and fourth for teams. Uh, if you can find those, you'll find some production uh, through the season. And Ty France was that. And I don't really see why the Mariners would move away from it next year. So Ty France seal of approval here at the 21st round. If you are looking for, for someone that is first base or second base eligible this late, uh, hey, France could be a very sneaky play and make himself a top 12 second baseman next year. Uh, so just just think about it. I'm not the guy that goes after bench bats. That's not how I roll. I'm more about bench pitchers so that I can hit on all of those. But if you are someone that feels better about <clears throat> about hitters, then yeah, you should, uh, you should be going after Ty France late. Two more here. Two more. We have Corey Kluber in the 22nd round. Kluber, of course, was someone I liked at the beginning of the year and didn't quite come to fruition as we hoped. Obviously, the injury close after the no-hitter in Texas. Uh, What do you see for Kluber in 2022? I don't really like this pick very much. (laughs) I'm not not (laughs) real happy with this one. You know, he, he, he had that... He had a, he had an okay season, right? He had a three eight three ERA with a three point eight four FIP, so not great, but but not going to kill you. Um, I don't know. I, I think one of the things I dislike about this is that he's he's been a, a slow starter through much of his career, and so like if he has a couple blow ups early in April, am I going to cut him or am I going to be like, oh, he's a slow starter, so let's let this drag on into May and June before yeah, right, I right. make a decision. Um, I needed to take another pitcher. I think realistically I need another reliever and I hit a point here where like, I just, I don't even know who the closers are going to be. So I couldn't even begin to guess who I wanted to take as a reliever. Um, if this were a real league, I'm probably dropping Kluber almost as soon as we open up any sort of free agency to add a closer or a setup guy who might graduate into a closer role or something like that. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that I have a lot of thoughts on Kluber. He was fine. Maybe he'll be fine again. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, uh, I needed a pitcher. I needed somebody who could pitch and he seemed like as good a choice as any at this point. Sure. I think, you know, I'm not ready to take like right after him was Grayson Rodriguez, who I love, but I'm not ready to take him and sit on him all year. Lynch, Kikuchi, Soroka is probably the most interesting of those guys that's left. I think Michael Fulmer from Scott Chujik, Michael Fulmer in the last round, I think taking him as a speculative closer might've been a better choice than taking Kluber. We'll see. I mean, look, when it comes down to Kluber, you're hoping he throws 91, 92. Uh, he averaged 90.5 this year. It's not what you wanted. In B. Kluber, it was 92.93. But, hey, we'll take 90, 91.5 to 92. Really, we want to see 92. We didn't get that much this year. I Otherwise, it's curveballs and cutters. Uh, the curveball was not the deadly breaker that we've seen of the past. 
I uh, got a lot of called strikes on it, which is great. And that's why I had a 39% CSW, but only an 18% swing strike rate. It wasn't quite as elite as we've seen. But then I think later on the season, it did improve when he did come back. It was there. Uh, the cutter is, to me, really the difference maker. Um, Kluber will have a breaking ball that is effective. That maybe not necessarily as elite, 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 but it will be effective. The cutter, uh, it had moments when it was alive. Uh, and then and then it went away in the next start and so on and so forth. I don't know what we're going to get out of that. I mean, I will say if you are interested in Kluber, watch it in spring. It's very important. Is Corey Kluber sitting? Not saying, hey, he hit 93 today. I don't care. Is he sitting 92? If that is actually what happens, if Kluber truly gets back to that, I think then the cutter will be better as well. Um, his velocity was down to 87.5 as opposed to 88, 89. We've seen in previous years when it was truly effective. So I think those go hand in hand. Um, definitely something to monitor in the spring. This could be a really bad pick. It could be a really good pick. We'll see. We'll find out uh, next year. And lastly, you took someone who's not even going to play in April, or at least a lot of it, and that is Ramon Laureano. I understand the talent level here. 14 home runs, 12 stolen bases in just 88 games this past year. But the question is, Chad, are you willing to have a dead spot on your bench for the first four weeks of the season? Yeah, and that that was a tough call with him, and I'm sure that's why he fell this far, especially because, like, if he were hurt, you shove him in an IL spot and you probably can replace right. him, but he's not. And so I'm. you look at where I took Grisham in the 13th round. I think Grisham's upside is higher than Loriano's, but Loriano was looking at a 2020 season with, you know, a, a not terrible 246 batting average, a, a bad but not horrendous 246 batting average, which I describe it, but the, the, the capability for him is, is there. He's, he's 27, so it's not like he's, you know, at the tail end of his career or anything. He should be right in his prime. And so, yeah, I'll take a shot at a guy who, if he plays a, even if he plays a full season of what he has left, is going to be a threat to go 2020. And I'm getting him with my last pick. Um, I'm, I'm super happy with that because, again, in a head-to-head league, as long as my team can get through that stretch in April without a, you know, a real problem, if he's up and running and at full speed and at that 2020 pace by the time August and September roll around, then I'm going to be thrilled and I can plug him into my lineup. And having a guy that you're plugging into your lineup in a September playoff matchup that you took in the 23rd round is that's the dream. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I mean, it's also a pick, you know, you make and you kind of expect to drop uh, before the season starts. But uh, that's the thing about the 23rd round. That one doesn't matter as much. Um, than the others. And yeah, if you don't have anything else to pick up, then great. You keep holding on to Luriano and then you expect to have that later on. So it's a, it's a good pick in the sense of you're giving yourself the opportunity, at least as far as someone else, then, well, yeah, you can just pick up that person because there's only three other picks. And let's be honest, Robbie Grossman, Yusei Kikuchi, Gavin Lux, not bad picks, but not necessarily someone that you have been like, oh no, I would much, much rather have than, uh, than taking the chance of Luriano. So Play to your strengths, play to what, you know, put yourself in that position, see what you would do if you're listening. Uh, I don't think I'm going to do it because I'm going to want to chase too many starters because uh, that's me. Hi, Nick Pollock here, uh, but I wouldn't do that. So uh, let's, this is what we do every single time. I'm going to do it differently this year a little bit on a scale of one to 23. How do you feel about this team, Chad? 
on a scale of 1 to 23, huh? Yes, there are 23 rounds. I felt like that was a good way of doing it. Fair enough. I was going to pull up my, my roster here. Um, I don't know. It's the 23-point scale, interesting. A, I don't know, like a 17? Okay, 17 is like, good. It's it's a risky team, especially in the pitching, right? I mean, you look at like, I feel pretty good about Urias as my you know, number one or number two, but then like Sale, Kershaw, Pablo, Clevenger, Lamette, like there's a there's a ton of risk there. Um, but I really like my offense. I feel really good about where I am with with my bats, and so uh, to me, it becomes a question of can enough of those pitchers perform and then can my bats keep me near the top half of the standings long enough to build out a playoff rotation and that and in a head-to-head league i'm i'm good with that right like i i don't need i don't need to win i don't need to win april and may i need to stay afloat in april and may and win august and september and i think this team sets me up well to do that as long as i'm aggressive playing the wire and finding those arms that'll get me over the top yeah, I think that's about right. That sounds that sounds good to me. Um, I I would take a few different pitchers. Uh, I think along the way, but I mean that's the only real thing I can say because that's just me and I'm super super biased. Um, you got four uh, seals of approval. I don't know if I announced it for Brandon Belt, but I thought that might have been applied. Um, so you got that one. You got uh, Ty France. Um, you had I uh, uh, let's see, it was Urias and then Dillon Lamette. Um, all of those get my seal approved. Four is a is a good number to get. Who who am I though? My seals are worthless. It's the only uh, seal I'm going to get, so I'll take it. <laughs> no one else is like reaching out and being like, "Hey, seal of approval <laughs> on your 14th round pick in a mock draft in October." <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, they gave it to you on uh, the Launch Angle podcast. Same with Trent Grisham, actually, as well. Um, but that's going to do it for this episode. Chad Young here uh, from the Keeper Cup podcast at Chad Young. Follow him on Twitter absolutely do that i'll be doing a lot more of these there are 11 more podcasts with including one with me going over all the other teams definitely check out the the board below in the the episode description let us know how you you know your thoughts of course on twitter about uh, chad young's picks if you disagree with any of them and of course if you agree with them and give your own seals please reach out to chad as well uh but that's gonna do it chad thank you so much for being a part of this today Hey, thanks for inviting me to be part of the draft and having me on. This was the, the draft was fun. This episode was fun. I hope people don't mind listening for two hours. <laughs> it's a but long it, off season, Chad. They'll be going back and listening to this one. To do. Exactly. Um, but that's going to do for this episode of On the Corner. So on behalf of Chad Young, my name is Nick Pollock. And I'll talk to you guys next week.